Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine, and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. In this episode, we're going to visit England, and more specifically, the interwar years, where another unbeaten horse plied his trade for two seasons in the mid-1930s. Now, to go through a racing career unbeaten is rare. To win a triple crown in whichever country is also an occasional treat, but to have the pair of these claims together is something only very few horses can claim. But Baram was one. And at a time when his owner, the Aga Khan, had become one of the most prolific and successful owner breeders in British racing history, there was no real doubt who his best ever was. But just how good was he? The bottom line was, no one really knew. As Baram was an enigma, even to his closest connections. There was no faltering his looks. By champion sire Blanford, out of top broodmare Fryer's daughter, his imposing frame was matched with perfect confirmation, perhaps second in Europe only to Niarko. He was named after the Aga Khan's cousin, Princess Baram, who had drowned when the SS Sussex was torpedoed during World War I, and he was trained by veteran Frank Butters at Newmarket. Baram's first eight years were intertwined with that of his owner breeder. Sir Sultan Mohammed Shah, known to the world and especially to the Nizari Ishmaeli Muslims to whom he was their spiritual leader as the Aga Khan, was at the start of this period a popular fellow in UK racing circles. Born in Karachi, but educated at Eton and Cambridge, his ways were very much those of the British aristocrat. He outdid his school friends by coming from a family even more fabulously wealthy than theirs. With a background like this, it was hardly surprising that he took an interest in the sport of kings. Yet it was an interest driven purely by commercial concerns. His success was immense and of profound and initially positive influence on UK racing. As leading owner seven times and with five prestigious studs in Ireland alone to satisfy his breeding interests, his wealth brought popularity across society. Yet the exterior investment in blue-blooded thoroughbreds hid an inner stinginess that raised an eyebrow or two in social circles. When it came to tipping, for example, he didn't exactly throw money around. Baram was foaled in 1932 at one of his breeder's Irish studs, possessing a handsome head with a unique ice cream cone white marking. At two, he wasn't initially thought to be the best in the yard. Partly, this was because of the easy success of his stable companion, Theft, in the Windsor Castle Stakes at Royal Ascot. But it was also because Baram was so outrageously lazy. To say that this sleep-obsessed colt did the bare minimum was an understatement. Yet when he made his debut under regular rider Freddie Fox at Sandown in the National Breeders' Produce Stakes, facing off against Theft, he came home the victor, by a neck, at 20 to 1. Clearly there had been little stable confidence at the time with this big and leggy colt. Yet he soon backed it up with victories in the Rouse Memorial at Goodwood and the prestigious Jim Crack Stakes at York. Each time showing both little urge to make any effort 
but being deeply impressive when compelled to. He completed his season with two wins on home turf at Newmarket, including the Group 1 Middle Park Stakes, where he almost casually notched up a six-furlong course record of 1 minute 11.2 seconds. It was no surprise that he headed the free handicap at the end of the year. Triple Crown plans brewed that winter, as Baram blossomed into a strong and imposing colt. But after missing his warm-up race for the 2,000 guineas, there were question marks about his sharpness and ability to run the full mile. Neither posed any problem, and he ambled away to win the first classic comfortably by a length and a half from old rival Theft. He was sent off a month later as a hot favourite for the Epsom Derby, where the usual half a million strong crowd descended. Those seeing him for the first time, including seasoned racing experts, believed that they had never seen a horse move more smoothly to post. But his stamina was untested. Confidence was high, though. The owner's son, Ali Khan, admitted afterwards that he had placed the biggest bet of his life that very morning. As it transpired, he needn't have fretted. Despite Freddy Fox finding himself boxed in at the rails halfway through, fellow jockey Harry Rag on, guess who, theft, obligingly gave him the space he needed, and Baram sauntered away for a victory, so seemingly without trying, that only seabirds 30 years later would ever be mentioned in the same breath. To prove that speed hadn't deserted him, he reverted back to a mile later in the same month at Royal Ascot St James Palace Stakes, again trotting up to win at the prohibitive odds of 8-1 to one on. The first spanner in the works came at the height of summer, when a coughing epidemic made one of its periodic visits to Newmarket, and Frank Butter's yard was hit. Although Baram escaped it, his training was disrupted, but he still made it to Doncaster in September to complete the rare triple crown in the one-mile six-furlong St. Ledger. Freddie Fox, however, did not, having been involved in a horrific fall the day before, and cheeky cockney Charlie Smirk was handed the plum ride. Putting in only as much effort as he ever needed to, Baram still coasted to perhaps his easiest victory yet, finishing five lengths clear of Solar Ray, with the ever-confident Smirk stating afterwards that his horse would have won carrying 12 stone and two riders. Perhaps he could have. And thus, this legend of the turf was retired, undefeated over five furlongs, 14 furlongs and everywhere in between. Yet still he had his detractors. Some claimed, spuriously, that he'd never beaten a good horse. Others claimed that he was kept apart from the other good horses because they were mostly owned by the Aga Khan. But this simply doesn't add up to scrutiny. There was nothing to suggest that Baram's peers were any inferior to usual. And in truth, no one really ever tested him. Conversely, it is true that he never faced older horses, and a 1935 clash between him and the two 1934 champions, Brantome and Windsor Ladd, would have been mouthwatering. Part of this apathy towards him was because of his attitude. Chilled beyond belief, his unique and signature pose was to lean against the stable wall, cross his front legs in an anthropomorphic way, and survey everything around him. You sense that if he had been human, he would likely have been drawn to surfing. In turn, he flummoxed those around him. 
Butters confided, I never really knew how good he was. What could be disputed was the wisdom of what happened to him thereafter. All-powerful the Aga Khan may have been, but, unlike the purer path chosen by his grandson in later years, to him, racehorses were commodities, not purveyors of sporting dreams and culture. He enjoyed his victories, but he certainly enjoyed the winner's checks even more. He retired all his champions at three rather than let them develop further at four. He then swore to the public that he would never sell Baram, only to go back on his word in 1940 and sell all of his derby winners to the highest bidder, inevitably the US. In Barham's case, a syndicate which included Walter P. Chrysler, S.W. Lebrot, James Cox Brady and the highly influential Alfred G. Vanderbilt bought him for £40,000, US dollars at the time, and he went to ply his trade in Maryland and then Virginia. It has been persuasively argued by breeding experts that this exporting of many of the great bloodlines away from the UK acted as one of the greatest catalysts for the westward shift in power over the ensuing decades. The year he left, Baram was second leading sire in the UK, and just 18 months after he departed, his son Big Game, owned by King George VI, won the 2,000 guineas, showing the British public again what might have been. Formerly huge fans, they now found it very hard to forgive the Aga Khan, who moved that very year, with the war at its zenith, to neutral Switzerland. Baram was part of this sad exodus, and, after siring a few stakes winners, was sold on, aged 13, to Argentina, where again his offspring didn't set the racetracks on fire. By the strange vagaries of lineage, his descendants were only found for many years in Germany. Only with the unexpected success of their stallion Monson have his distant descendants once again been seen succeeding on top tracks. His death at 24 passed by without much fanfare. Yet for those 16 months where he so effortlessly swatted away everything in his lazy path on the racecourse, there were many who swore they had never seen better. Next time we'll go to a different part of the world and explore the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening. <laughs>